Welcome, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez, and it's my great privilege to welcome you to this, the final lecture of our summer lecture series here at Rear Book School. And uh, we're very privileged today to have two great speakers, two great scholars with us this afternoon. Uh, Tonight, we're going to hear the Malkin Lecture, which is the uh, oldest name lecture at Rare Book School. The Soul and Mary Ann Malkin Lecture in Bibliography is named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual Rare Book School lecture in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin, in recognition, in recognition of his contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December 1985. Although Saul died in 1986, Marianne continued to support Rare Book School, both at Columbia and then when the school moved at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she allowed Rare Book School founding director Terry Bellinger to change the name of the lecture to the Sol M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. Until her death in 2005, Mary Ann Malkin came down from New York City to attend most of the Malkin Lectures, and she left the school a significant portion of her estate. She was truly a great friend of Rare Book School, and it's a high privilege to honor her memory in this ongoing way. Malkin lecturers over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Robert Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher de Hamel, James Green, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Kyles Lieb, Paul Needham, Bill Reese, Kenneth Rendell, Roger Stoddard, and Marjorie Wynn. Joining their ranks as this year's Malkin Lectures are two distinguished scholars, and it's a great pleasure to introduce them to you now. Jacqueline Goldsby and Meredith McGill co-direct the Black Bibliography Project, a Mellon-funded initiative to build an electronic database whose information sources and data design challenge the traditional conventions of bibliography by incorporating the values that the African-American artistic, scholarly, and curatorial communities have long brought to the practice of making and preserving Black texts. This is a groundbreaking project that is extremely important of great consequence for the future of bibliography and book history. And we are deeply indebted to professors Goldsby and McGill for directing this project and to the Mellon Foundation for helping to fund it. 
Jacqueline Goldsby is professor of English African American Studies and American Studies at Yale University. She currently chairs Yale's Department of African American Studies. Professor Goldsby is the author of A Spectacular Secret, Lynching in American Life and Literature, published by the University of Chicago Press, which won the MLA's William S. Scarborough Prize. The Journal of American History called her book an impressive cultural and literary study and observed historians working to unravel lynching's tangled relationship to modernity will now have to grapple with Goldsby's significant contribution to the conversation. The African American Review said her book is essential reading. Professor Goldsby's scholarship is principally centered upon African American literature and book history during the long century of Jim Crow segregation from 1865 to 1965. In 2015, she edited the Norton Critical Edition of James Weldon Johnson's 1912 novel, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. Meredith McGill is professor and chair of English at Rutgers University. She is the author of American Literature and the Culture of Reprinting, 1834 to 1853, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, a study of the literary consequences of 19th century American resistance to tight control over intellectual property. One reviewer called it a major study of Jacksonian print culture that should be required reading. While Janice Radway opined, McGill's book will have a major impact on history of the book scholarship as well as upon American literary and cultural studies more generally. Professor McGill is the editor of two collections of essays, Traffic in Poems, 19th Century Poetry and Transatlantic Exchange, and Taking Liberties with the Author, which was published by the American Council of Learned Societies. Please join me in welcoming Professors Goldsby and McGill as our 2021 Malkin Lecturers. Thank you so much, Michael, for that really generous introduction and for the humbling history of the Malkin Lectures. Um, it's a real honor to be here with you this evening. And we're, Meredith and I are really grateful to you, Michael, and to Laura Item for extending the invitation for us to share our work for, with you all here in the Rare Book uh, School community. And again, just hearing the history of this lecture uh, inspires me and humbles me. And I'm sure Meredith feels the same. So thank you very much. We wanna make sure we give a second thanks to Laura for organizing the logistics. We know it's no small task to plan Zoom lectures and seminars. Uh, so thank you, Laura. And we're grateful to all of you for making time on this summer evening to attend 
of course, we prefer to meet in person uh, and exchange ideas with you face to face, but Zoom is the next best thing to being in Charlottesville. And of course, we're really super grateful that it allows people to come who might not be able to make it to Charlottesville uh, otherwise. Just a quick note on our talk. Um, we wrote it together. We're gonna deliver it in uh, alternating fashion. So you'll, we'll bounce back and forth between the two of us. Uh, I'm gonna drive the slideshow. So I'm gonna take a moment to make sure that I can share my screen properly. Um, did that work? Can people see the screen? Great, I've got a thumbs up. Uh, terrific, okay, so I'll launch us um, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll dive right in. Over the last 50 years, the study of African-American literature has grown rapidly in size and importance. It is now a vital field of specialization in any English department of merit. And yet scholars of African-American literature still lack thorough bibliographic knowledge of many of the texts at the heart of the field. Why has bibliographic studies been marginalized within the field's development? And what intellectual impact has this created? The opening of the Anglo-American literary canon to writers of color coincided in the late 20th century with the decline in the scholarly practice of descriptive bibliography, the systematic study of books as physical objects. This divided path has produced significant unevenness in the resources available to scholars, arguably reinstituting a color line that needlessly hampers the growth of African-American literary studies. Even as bibliographic study waned in importance in English departments, criticism of canonical white writers continues to be shored up by authoritative accounts of the production and transmission of Anglo-American texts. Two examples come quickly to mind. The groundbreaking Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson electronic archives rest on decades of meticulous bibliographic scholarship, enlivening the possibilities for research and teaching their verse. By contrast, scholars of studying African-American and black diaspora literatures are often forced to sort out complex and confusing publication histories on their own because standard bibliographic sources often don't include black writers in their canonical range. For instance, the nine volume Bibli bibliography of American literature, the BAL, the gold standard reference tool in US book history provides comprehensive bibliographic information for American authors of belletristic works who died before 1930. However, due to a narrow definition of literariness, an emphasis on elite print sources, as well as mid 20th century ignorance of the wide range of African-American writing, only a single African-American author, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, earned entry into BAL's ranks, sharply limiting the utility of this important reference tool for African-Americanists. But bibliographic information about black authors only seems scarce from the perspective of the dominant critical and bibliographic tradition. If we broaden our understanding of bibliography to include the work of black collectors, librarians, and institution builders, we find not a trickle, but a flood of information about black writing. Checklists, enumerative bibliographies, bio-bibliographies, union catalogs, bibliographies of bibliographies, an extraordinarily rich intellectual tradition to which scholars have paid scant attention. For instance, if we turn to works such as Dorothy Porter's North American Negro Poets, 1760 to 1944, French Fabre and Singh's Afro-American Poetry, 1760 to 1975, or Geraldino Matthews's 
a Black American Writers, a Bibliography and Union List, we'll find Dunbar's works noted along with the dozens of Black poets who were his contemporaries during the 1890s and early 1900s. Even more, these bibliographies remap the sites of Black verse cultures in the US beyond the expected centers of literary gravity, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Chicago. Indeed, taken together, these bibliographies suggest that African-American poetry is predominantly a local or grassroots practice. Given the sheer number and broad geographical distribution across the nation of authors, printers, and small publishing firms these works detail. In the wake of this evidence, we have to ask, what might these earlier efforts at describing the field of cultural production tell us about African-American literary history and the practice of bibliography itself? And what exactly is Black about the tradition of Black bibliography? In our remarks this evening, we will sketch the history of 20th century African-American attempts to organize Black writing, describing a series of ambitious bibliographic projects that were shaped by the particular struggles of African-Americans to gain access to print and to preserve evidence of Black agency and achievement. Our aim is to distill some of the principles that we've gleaned from these works and that guide our development of the Black Bibliography Project, our attempt to revive descriptive bibliography as a critical practice in African-American literary studies. We hope to show how the BBP and the tradition on which it rests offer new payoffs for African-American literary studies and for bibliographic studies and book history in general. 20th century African-American bibliography comes in three major waves that coincide with the institutionalization of Black studies in the modern American academy. The explosive growth of Black studies programs and departments after 1968 triggered a, verit a veritable avalanche of bibliographic scholarship as colleges, universities, and public libraries sought to do two things, to acquire more Black history-related materials and to inventory and assess what they already owned. However, the 1930s and 1940s were also an especially active era of bibliographic work, no less urgent than the 1960s, since the immediate post-war years coincided with the growth of university-based and professionally managed archives and the death of major Black bibliophiles whose collections were the foundations of these new repositories. For instance, the documentary drive that characterized Depression-era Works Progress Administration initiatives included crucial bibliography projects at Howard University and the Chicago Public Library. Dorothy Porter supervised a WPA-funded effort to catalog the vast holdings of the Moreland Collection in 1937 to 1938, an important endeavor during her early years leading Howard's library. Around that same time in Chicago, a research team directed by Elizabeth Wemp compiled a union catalog that sourced and annotated all Black authored or Black themed books, pamphlets, and periodicals held in the city's major repositories, public and private, university-based and civic organizations. The World War II era saw the growth of publicly accessible archives fueled by the passing of major bibliophiles. Arturo Schomburg's death in 1938 solidified the holdings of the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library. In 1946, Henry Slaughter transferred his magnificent collection to Atlanta University, while Arthur Spinger dedicated his to Howard. Novelist librarian Arna Bontomps expanded Fisk University's special collections when he was appointed director in 1943, 
and Carl Van Vechten mobilized his interracial artistic networks to contribute their rare books and artworks to Yale University and Fisk University in 1941 and 1949, respectively. Each of these repositories took up the massive task of compiling finding aids, catalogs, and dictionary catalogs that inventory their holdings. These bibliographic works not only served their home institutions, once they were published in the 1970s, these bibliographies helped create the research infrastructure for African-American studies rise. Early 20th century bibliography set the stage for these, these mid and later 20th century projects. Scholars of black librarianship agree that the practice of compiling bibliographies of bibliographies begins with W.E.B. Du Bois's Atlanta University's Select Bibliography in 1905, and it crystallized with Monroe Works, A Bibliography of the Negro in Africa and America, a remarkable achievement that surpassed Du Bois' volume with its transnational multilingual scope. The next landmark bibliography of bibliographies was published in 1984, nearly half a century later. The unrivaled innovator in Black librarianship, Dorothy Porter, endorsed Richard Newman's Black Access as the new standard in her introduction to this formidable volume, which includes 3,000 bibliographies of Black writing in its scope. Newman, in turn, credits Betty Gubert's 1982 early Black bibliographies for reprinting the signal catalogs and checklists compiled by the great 19th and early 20th century bibliophiles of Black print culture. Robert Adger, William Bolivar, Daniel A.P. Murray, and Arturo Schomburg, among others. Bibliography's historical connection with book collecting has pegged it as an elite endeavor. The Black bibliophiles and bibliographers undertook such work as early as the mid-19th century and approached it with distinctively different values. Literary historian Tony Martin notes that Black bibliophiles collected books to counter the pseudo-scientific racism that was so prevalent during the 19th century. Importantly, these early collections focused on ancient African and Egyptian history to prove the greatness and civilization of Black peoples prior to enslavement. They also aimed to collect materials printed across the Black diaspora, acquiring titles from the Caribbean, South America, Europe, and Africa to knit together global networks of Black print communities. Committed to education, Black bibliophiles preserve printed works as proof of Black achievement and as a legacy for future generations. For that reason, their collections extended beyond books to include pamphlets, newspapers, and newspaper clippings. In an era when public libraries, like other public facilities, often refused access to Black readers, Black collectors acquired materials to make them available to the public, stressing their use as much as their display. Finally, Black bibliophiles pooled their resources to collect works communally. This was the strategy of the 1915 American Negro Collectors Exchange, a practice with its roots in the early 19th century Black reading rooms and literary societies, a world that Elizabeth McHenry recovers so brilliantly in Forgotten Readers. In these ways, collecting was an act of political activism, an ongoing attempt to correct the record of American history by preserving writings that documented Black presence, contributions, and struggles towards freedom. Though Black bibliophiles also wrote about their own collections, producing catalogs and enumerative bibliographies, Dorothy Porter criticized these early efforts as frustratingly incomplete. 
she noted that it's a pity that the early bibliophiles kept no narrative reports about when, where, and how they acquired their books, underscoring the difference between these works and the rigorously documented bibliographies and catalogs professional Black librarians would later prepare. Indeed, bibliographic documentation may be a more apt phrase to characterize the work of most 20th century Black bibliographers, given the varied and sometimes hybrid rubrics that emerged from the 1930s through the 1990s, union catalogs, dictionary catalogs, checklists, biobibliography, and descriptive bibliography. No matter the method, these works share an imperative to identify Black writing, to make it visible and accessible, and by any bibliographic means necessary. Toward that goal, an exploratory, even experimental outlook characterizes this tradition. For instance, Richard Newman can barely contain his glee when he discloses that Black access includes discographies along with books and other print material. By his lights, music is integral to understanding the development of Black print culture. Teresa Rush's Biographical and Bibliographical Dictionary includes contemporary authors' works in progress, along with extensive lists of their periodical publications, referring, reinforcing the idea that codex publications are not the only measure of a writer's output. Monroe Works 1928 Bibliography was presciently transnational. Dorothy Porter openly defied the norms of Anglo-American bibliography to compile her 1945 Early American Negro Writings, a bibliographical study. She noted that since present practice does not provide for catalog entries under the color or race of the author, nor as a general rule does a library classification bring them together on a shelf, existing bibliographical apparatus was of very little use, and my checklist had to be built up item by item, in the main by the slow process of first framing a possible list of Negro authors, and then by searching existing catalogs and collections for the published works of each name on the list. Making Black writing visible as such, this meticulously researched checklist also provided the rationale for Porter's greatest contribution to Black studies and American librarianship. As Melanie Chambliss, Laura Helton, and Zita Nunes have shown, Porter radically revised the Dewey Decimal System's reductive treatments of works by Black authors, reassigning call numbers to books so that they could be recognized both as Black writing and as contributions to their respective disciplines. What's distinctive about Black bibliographic practice depends, we contend, on compilers' awareness of the conditions and traditions that have shaped Black print, Black archives, and the cultural and institutional efforts to preserve them. Black bibliography can be written by all scholars, Black and non-Black alike, if they're mindful of the following principles. First, Black bibliography encompasses more than books. All of these compilers emphatically acknowledge the centrality of periodicals, anthologies, and other print ephemera to Black print culture. Even if they exclude such materials from their list, they admit that those materials are indispensable to understanding Black literary production. Second, Black bibliography traverses the disciplines. Newman was emphatic about this point. His inclusion of discographies reflects that outlook. The early bibliographies, Gubert reprints, encompass the social sciences as well as literature. Porter's early American Negro writings tracks a wide variety of genres, for instance, poetry, sermons, and convention minutes, and also discursive fields, that is, 
aesthetics, theology, and politics, as befits the earlier period's more capacious definition of literature. But so too does North Carolina State's 1975 Union Catalog of Black American Writers, 1773 to 1949, which lists literature along with writing in the social sciences, public policy, and technology. As a rule, Black bibliographies present Black writing as polyvalent, coexisting with multiple discourses, disciplines, and epistemologies. Third, Black bibliography is openly and proactively political. There's no doubt that Black bibliophiles and collectors acquired print materials for the pleasures of the text. Their personal curiosity certainly spurred their investments. For Black bibliographers, dealers' catalogs and checklists made for thrilling reading. However, organizing Black print collections into bibliographies also made important political statements. Black bibliographies record proof of Black scholarship and creativity. Black bibliographies assert the practice of Black knowledge production despite racism's repressive impacts. Black bibliographies articulate an ongoing struggle for acknowledgement in a world dominated by white-founded and white-run institutions. Fourth, Black bibliography is untroubled by the concept of bibliographic control. Strikingly, unlike contemporary critics of the archive, the compilers of Black bibliographies believe their fundamental challenge does not consist in redressing the lack or absence of records. On the contrary, the problem Black bibliographers face is a surfeit of print materials. Though managing this excess puts Black bibliographers in awe, it isn't a condition they mourn because they regard bibliographic assessment and writing to be provisional at best. For them, bibliographic control is a more porous idea than it sounds. For instance, Samuel May admitted in his 1863 Catalog of Anti-Slavery Publications in America that, quote, the following list does not pretend to completeness, close quote. He offered it nonetheless as, quote, the commencement of a better one, close quote. Though Daniel A.P. Murray sought to, quote, secure a copy of every book and pamphlet in existence by a Negro author, close quote, he wanted to display these works at the 1900 Paris Exposition, he disavowed the monumentalizing logic his ambition implied. To start, he titled his bibliography a preliminary checklist. He also conducted a national survey to seek leads for his list, offering to pay contributors for shipping materials to him. Amassing 500 items through this communal effort, Murray rightfully exhorted, quote, I need not dilate upon the value of such a collection to future investigators of the bibliography of Negro authorship, close quote. That Murray and May relish the prospect of indeterminacy reminds us that bibliography begins a process of inquiry that can and must be revised because no list is ever finished or complete. Stretching beyond books to ephemeral and periodical publications, traversing the disciplines, adopting a flexible approach to enumeration, and bearing the unmistakable stamp of an activist agenda, Black bibliography chafes against the norms of Anglo-American bibliography as this discipline developed over the course of the 20th century. For instance, both cataloging and bibliography have prioritized universality in information design. But such norms reproduce the biases of the dominant culture. They fail to reflect the genres of Black writing and the formats in which Black authors published, to the point where their works have often been excluded from bibliographic scholarship. 
Bibliography as a discipline doesn't necessarily reflect the values that African-Americanist scholarly and curatorial community communities have long brought to the practice of preserving black texts. Tied to a market for rare books that prizes scarcity, traditional bibliography winnows and straightens out the often convoluted pathways of a text circulation. It tells the story of publication as an enumerated list of firsts. But we know black print culture doesn't work like that. Black print is characterized by overlapping histories of reprints and reissues, excerpts, lags, and revivals. Black print frequently circulates outside of and below the radar of mainstream publishing houses and trade journals. Black print culture intersects with that of white authors and publishers, but it has its own tempo, its own pressures to negotiate, and requires a different set of institutional structures and alliances to thrive and survive. What bibliographic model could render and distill this flux while also reflecting black print culture's particular modes of literary production? We founded the Black Bibliography Project to revive descriptive bibliography for African-American literary studies, convinced that re-engaging with the long tradition of Black bibliography will change how literary critics approach Black texts. Collaborating with an ACE team of catalogers and metadata librarians at Yale's Beinecke and Sterling Libraries, in partnership with scholars, curators, and librarians across the country, as well as graduate students from our home institutions, We've begun to develop a database that we hope will be better suited to black print, one that harnesses the capacities of linked data to shift the locus of bibliographic value from books as objects to the networks of human and institutional actors who create and sustain literary culture. We recently concluded a pilot grant funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to design and test our model. We wanted to outline some of the basic features of our approach, one that reflects a black approach to descriptive bibliography. We'll begin by describing the data model developed by the BBTP team. And what you're looking here at here at the top of the slide is the Beinecke Library catalog entry for Frederick Douglass's narrative. And the three squares below it show how we re rearrange this data in the BBP database. And we'll go through them one by one. Each item that's entered into our database receives three levels of description, work, edition, and copy. Work is not a physical object at all, but rather it's an abstraction. This term refers to the intellectual content of a specific print item. Edition represents all the copies of an item printed at a given time from one setting of type without substantial change. And copy represents the specific item being described. Dividing bibliographic description in this way not only allows us to chart the history of a text reprinting across time and across cultures, it also allows us to extend the database to encompass non-print media. All editions of a particular text are linked to one another at the level of the work, and all representations of a text in non-print media, such as oral performance, radio plays, or film treatments, these can also be linked to the print record as instantiations of a particular work. In this way, BBP's data model can capture the flows of black writing in and beyond print media across time and across cultures. We define edition, as you can see on this slide, in the traditional bibliographic sense, but we collect more information at this level than most descriptive bibliographies. In addition to publication information such as title, publisher, printer, and date, 
we record copyright status and note the presence of illustrations and frontispieces. We record the names of editors, stereotypers, engravers, and, and illustrators, writers of forewords, introductions, and afterwards, and the names of dedicatees and copyright holders. These data points give a rich picture of the many agents involved in bringing a work to print. At the copy level, as you can see here as well, we record information particular to the copy a researcher holds in hand, material descriptions such as the nature of the binding, its height and width, its condition, and the presence of presentation inscriptions and other evidence of provenance, including evidence of institutional collecting practices and shelf marks. The information we record at the copy level gives us an account of how a book has come down to us, the hands through which it's passed, and the institutions dedicated to preserving it. What activates these three levels of description is the data design scheme called linked data. Linked data describes a technique for recording meaningful relationships between data points expressed as triples or sets of three terms. And we use this design scheme in conjunction with Wikibase, which serves as our software platform. For instance, to render basic information about Frederick Douglass's most famous book in linked data form, one would need to teach the computer some pretty basic things, creating a set of statements such as, Frederick Douglass is an instance of a human. Narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass is an instance of a work. Frederick Douglass is the author of Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. The Boston Anti-Slavery Society is an instance of a collective agent. Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass was published by the Boston Anti-Slavery Society and so forth. Linked data inscribes relationships into data as it is recorded. Rather than offering a flat field of information for keyword searching, linked data schemes record meaningful or semantic links between data points. These relationships themselves are then machine readable. And this is a visualization of the kinds of connections it's possible to draw between and among linked data points once you've entered them in those uh, to the database as those sets of triples. As such statements accrue in our database, it becomes possible for computers to draw connections between them. Using linked data to power the BBP's database allows us to strengthen the interpretive capacity of our bibliography in several exciting ways. And these are ways that we think reflect the values of the Black bibliographic tradition. For instance, early experiments with our data model raised the question of how to ensure that Black authors received their due even as we enriched our database with the names of numerous other agents, both individual and corporate, who played a role in getting a work into print. We encountered this issue when at one data entry workshop, we realized that using Wikibase's contributor attribute for all individuals associated with a work gave black writers and white editors and publishers equivalent status. So in this, you know, initially Phyllis Wheatley and John Wheatley would both be regarded as contributors to the publication of her poems. And this was a problem for us. No one was comfortable with this. In Wikibase's data ontology, the term contributor is neutral, but for black print culture, it's charged and laden with racialized power. After careful discussion, we decided to attach the attribute author and only the author at the level of the work. Our database thus prioritizes and honors the agency of black writers. No matter how many editions of Phyllis Wheatley's poems on various subjects, religious and moral, are entered into the BBP's database, including reprints that are credited to an editor, 
Phyllis Wheatley's name as author will supersede any other as the primary link to the work. Once we had solved the problem of granting primacy in the database to Black authors, we were excited by the capacity of linked data to broaden the focus of bibliography from individual authors to the social networks that have sustained Black literary culture, what John Ernest has called the accomplished community that's richly, richly reflected in the materiality of Black texts themselves. Our decision to record the names of dedicatees and writers of supplementary material at the edition level and to record copious amounts of information at the copy level, including names inscribed on fly leaves, institutional classifications of Black books, and traces of the history of their preservation, reflects our commitment to honoring the work of those who have preceded us in valuing and preserving Black books. It's also produced unexpected dividends for social and cultural history. Our work to identify people named in and inscribed on the works we analyze has yielded numerous individuals as yet unrecorded in the authoritative central repository of biographical data, the Library of Congress Name Authority Index. Roughly one quarter of the names we've entered into our database so far can't be found there. With the support of genealogists and catalogers, the BBP promises to enrich the store of biographical knowledge. Designing a data model for serials and figuring out how individual literary works such as short stories, tales, poems, plays, essays, and serialized fiction could link up with our data model for books was a crucial challenge, one made urgent by the centrality of periodicals to Black literary culture. We knew that we had to devise a data model for periodicals, given that magazines and newspapers have provided Black authors valuable opportunities to hone their craft and reach predominantly Black readerships when white-owned and managed firms refused to publish or heavily censored Black writing. Our data model for serials, as you see here on this slide, permits us to record in detail the contents of any one newspaper or magazine. Individual poems, essays, tales, and such that appear in anthologies, another distinctive mode in Black print history, will receive much the same treatment as periodicals. Including serials and anthologies in our database will permit users to trace the life cycle of a literary work, such as, in this instance, Langston Hughes's poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, from its first publication in the Crisis Magazine in June 1921, to its first book publication in The Weary Blues in 1926. Ideally, our database would include every single reprinting in book or periodical format after those inaugural venues, including recitations of the poem, vinyl recordings, and other multimedia literary sources, as this map of links illustrates. We're well aware that our call to revive descriptive bibliography in African-American literary studies isn't new. As we sketch for you this evening, there is a long, distinguished, and innovative tradition of Black bibliography, one practiced by scholars, librarians, and private collectors long before the founding of the BBP. We also understand that our project takes its place alongside and draws sustenance from a number of other projects that take advantage of the digital medium to organize and interpret Black writing. For instance, Mary Emma Graham's project on the history of Black writing has amassed publication information on over 1,000 novels written by African-Americans between 1853 and 1990. Elizabeth Maddock-Dillon and Nicole Aljo's early Caribbean digital archive 
collects digital versions of rare and scattered texts from across the Caribbean with a focus on the recovery of black voices embedded in colonial writing. The Black Press Research Collective serves as a hub for information and scholarship on the role of newspapers in the black diaspora. And the Colored Conventions Project recovers, data mines, and interprets the published minutes and news coverage of black freedom struggle activist meetings during the 19th century. As the digitization of black print proceeds, the need for black bibliography becomes even more acute. We should welcome this new surfeit of digital print, but as the black bibliography tradition also teaches us, making these materials accessible and useful requires the imposition of order. We can't perceive or value the cultural work bibliographies perform if we get distracted by the politics of list making. To be sure, lists reflect subjective choices. Lists impose arbitrary limits. Lists codify and categorize. Lists also routinize and regiment. However, the Black bibliography tradition teaches us that lists also democratize and in profound and lasting ways. As Laura Helton has brilliantly argued, and I quote her here, the seemingly non-literary work of building infrastructure is a high stakes form of literary practice. Close quote. For that reason, we're excited and heartened to see that field leading organizations such as the Bibliographic Society of America and the Rare Book School are reimagining their curricula to be more expansive. Describing the material text, the BSA's multicultural approach to descriptive bibliography, and the Rare Book School's Mellon funded Critical Bibliography Fellowship Program promise to train scholars across subfields in book historical and bibliographic techniques. Still, the remaining challenge to bibliographic studies and African-American literary studies alike is the greatest lesson Black bibliography offers. How do we create knowledge systems that defy and transform structural racism silencing impacts? Because the exclusions that Black bibliographers labor to redress can, do, and will repeat themselves in different guises as forms of knowledge and power evolve. Consider a final example. This haunting image of the title page to Betty Gubert's early Black bibliographies is taken from a digitized copy uploaded to the Internet Archive. What's this cop copy's provenance? It appears to have been withdrawn from a library at the University of California, Riverside, perhaps removed from the shelves for off-site storage or deaccession because it was no longer in active use. Whatever policy or practice is signaled by the red-lettered stamp withdrawn, we take it as a provocation and an inspiration to reinsert Black bibliography into scholarly conversations, to call attention to the remarkable history of Black bibliographers, and to leverage the opportunities provided by new media to build on their efforts. Organizing knowledge is a vital and deeply political act. That's why we take what's Black about Black bibliography to be its commitment to the civic uses of bibliography. The tradition of Black bibliography calls upon all of us, scholars, librarians, archivists, book collectors, not only to critique systems of exclusion, but to reimagine what the field of bibliography is and to enrich what the field could be. Thank you. And thank you. Um, thank you, Jacqueline, and thank you, Meredith. Um, what a brilliant talk. 
Um, greetings all, my name is Barbara Heritage and I'm here to kick off uh, the discussion for this very powerful lecture. Um, and thank you so much with the, the way that you've called attention again to these power structures and the way that knowledge is organized is so important, um, especially right now in this moment, there's so much work being done by library professionals, by archivists to remediate description. It comes at a time when there's um, just a, a, a very strong movement to do this work. Um, and we're just uh, delighted and honored to have you speak on your work here, when we have so many practitioners gathered together virtually. Um, I'd like to kick off um, Q&A with my own question, and I would invite others to please share questions in the chat. Um, so again, this is a, I was just struck by the um, highly detailed presentation that you shared showing, showing how your system works um, and how you're implementing it with the linked data um, approach, which again, seems, seems really um, timely and very important. I was wondering, one question I had, um, because you're calling attention to all of these different individuals who play these important roles in the production and distribution and making of these texts, I was wondering about what you said, the shift from books as objects to networks of actors, because there are some, there are some, there are some actors who are not necessarily named or inscribed in books as we know. And I know that that's, you're calling attention to that. I'm thinking of, for example, paper makers, mm -hmm. and you're not gonna find the name of paper makers inscribed or named in books. You're going to find it looking at watermarks, maybe yeah. stationers marks through traditional analytical bibliographical techniques. Um, and so there's this, and I would say too, sometimes with binders, there were many um, women book binders whose initials can only be found by studying the cloth, um, imp you know, impressions that are stamped in cloth. And Sue Allen, who used to teach for RBS, called attention to the work of so many women that had been overlooked and so many uh, publishers volumes, so many publishers bindings were, were being thrown away by libraries and she, in her own activism, I suppose, in this area called attention to, to women's labor. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, is there a way to incorporate mm -hmm. those, mm -hmm. those voices or those mm -hmm. people who are often silenced because they're not inscribed or mm -hmm. named in the mm -hmm. objects? And um, mm -hmm. how would you do that? I can begin taking a stab at that. I, I you know, technically speaking, uh, this speaks to the data design, not really to the larger question, but um, we have created the possibility of adding uh, reference for when it's uh, outside information, information that, that comes from elsewhere and not the inspection mm -hmm. of the item. Mm -hmm. So it's possible to link mm -hmm. to a record if we've learned about something somewhere else. We, you know, we were in the beginning stages of this project and we it was a lot of fun developing the data model because we worked back and forth between books that were in front of us that raised questions we couldn't answer given our data model and then um, our metadata team was going behind the scene and trying to fix the you know to add properties and characteristics so we could reflect them it was a really nice reciprocal process so we did at some point realize we wanted to be able to add references to different um, to uh, information that came from outside of the object mm -hmm. uh, so technically speaking there is a way of doing that um, mm -hmm. but you, you know you really raise a, a really good question about um, uh, you know, in general, about all the people that are um, silent producers of books, not named. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I just to add to that, I think it um, if Meredith was sharing with you the ways in which the data design arguably can accommodate that type of and admit and 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 um, lift up those silent workers, those silent, um, it gets to the challenge of scope for the project, right? Um, I would almost want to deliberately go after and define as part of our corpus print materials that would allow us to recover those makers of the object. Not only to teach students and scholars and users of of the database, you know, how to trace that information themselves, but to make the point that Black print was engaged in those types of processes of manufacture as well. And we might discover all kinds of interesting networks that we didn't expect, right? Mm. Um, But I think that that's going to, that points to one of the challenges we faced as we scale up the project, thinking about the scope. What will be the corpus of works that we bring into the project? That's such an important point, Jacqueline, because I was thinking about that too, Um, scope and how Mm -hmm. long it can take. Um, In my own work, for example, working on paper in Charlotte Bronte's manuscripts Mm -hmm. to suss Mm -hmm. out those relationships. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm, I'm, thank you for your, your responses. Those are, um, it's encouraging to hear you engaging with that and also thinking about how you, how it can be managed given, Mm -hmm. given the labor. Um, Mm -hmm. It looks like we have some questions coming in. Some um, hand raising here, um, and we encourage them through chat as well. I think Virginia Jackson was among the first to raise a hand. So um, let's see, can we, I'm going to ask Virginia to unmute and perhaps Virginia, you can also share your video so we can hear from you. Hi. Hi. Um, hi, Meredith and, and Jackie, um, that was amazing. Uh, and I have actually a version of um, the question that Laura just asked, so that's why I decided to raise my hand, um, which has to do with the attachment of the author or the author function to the highest level of abstraction, that is to the work mm. in your process. And I know you've both thought a lot about this, so I would just love you to talk a little bit more because you know, you're saying so many things, and that one, I just thought, oh, oh, okay, um, the authors attached to the work, and I do understand the example of Wheatley, how and why that would be so important, but I also wonder about the consequences for um, everything, right, of attaching author to work and what it means um, for, does the author then become definitional for the Blackness of Black bibliography, or, or do the producers of texts then in a way, you know, are they still in the background of the mm-hmm. author? I'm. Mm-hmm. It just raises mm-hmm. all kinds of really interesting questions. Um, yeah. So I that I would love to to hear more about. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, Jenny. Um, I mean, I would like to think that the linked data capacities of our hoped for database. Uh, can continually put pressure on the categories we use to engage with a print object. I would hope that. Um, And recognizing, you know, on the one hand, the uh, uh, kind of just labor 
the labor management that's required to organize a project of this scope on the one hand, we've been debating this for years now, do we, do we think about, you know, offers as portals that allow us to kind of go in and recover this very messy, tangled, you know, set of networked relationships? Or do we think about movements? Or do we think about periods? Or do we think about kinds of, you know, formats? How do we want to come in on this to just manage it, right? I mean, if we're lucky and we get this next round of Mellon funding, we've got three years to pull something yeah. off that matters, right? Um, so there's, there's, there's the practicality of, of, thinking about authors that way and keeping them alive as a concept. And there's just the real politics for me of, you know, um, when, when, when we enter into knowledge systems to retrieve a history of black literary production, um, do we want to value everybody else but the writer, you know? Um, and I think that, again, uh, you know, that's a really great question. And I, I think right now I'm of the mind that, uh, yes, um, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I, I don't, because I think that, that, that there's a way in which, especially with print culture, I'm going to go out on a little bit on a limb here. I want black writers to receive the kind of creative, critical, institutional, cultural due that we grant to musicians, you know? Mm. And, um, and, and I think that there's, there's a way in which uh, the, I don't deny the collectivism of producing a black print object ever, but I also think that there's something so tremendous about the act of a writer from whatever background of choosing to enter into language and to find a new language to communicate their vision of a world to us. I wanna figure out a way to honor that. Um, and then I just think that there is the, the politics of, of, of how the lessons I've drawn from the black bibliographic tradition of, of how to, again, honor that, that intellectual work um, of the author. Um, because the stakes of speaking out could be so high for Black writers across time and in different cultures. Um, so that's how I'm thinking about it. Um, but I would like to think that our linked data model will continually invite us to pressure that construct of the author um, and the centrality of it. So, yeah. And I just jump in to say, that you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about scope and where to begin collecting data, where and how to begin collecting data. And uh, you know, authors are an obvious, uh, authors are important to, to us as literary scholars and the discipline of literary study is very um, tied into authors and literary discourse to authorship. But we've, we've really thought about coming up with other rubrics for collecting data. So taking publishing houses, for instance, uh, and collecting all the works in a particular publishing list, or uh, looking at the AME Church publishing, looking at the institutions uh, that that were responsible for um, publishing Black writing, and and yes, the author will still be attached to the work, but the richness of the data that we collect, based on these other optics, um, I think I think we'll I think a lot of the discovery is going to happen there um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, once we get the authors uh, and their works. Uh, and the data collected. We'll see. Um, great question, though. Yeah, great question and great point too, um, Meredith, about the discoverability with that, yeah. the, the visuals. I know that um, uh, we have had uh, uh, Katie was 
was waiting in queue. And Katie, I don't know if you've unmuted. Um, are you with us? I think that Ida Jones had her hand up before I did. Nope, nope, yours was up first. And actually it's queued in automatically in Zoom. <laughs> so thank you for oh, being generous. But you're, you're, Ida can only speak after you do, Katie. <laughs> okay, well, I'll go, I'll go really quickly. Okay, um, thank this you. Is Katie. This is, this is Katie Childs, like Katie's iPhone. Um, thank you to Meredith and Jackie for doing this amazing project. I am the third person in a row to ask about authorship, but I, I, a real quick question. I love the way that you're talking about collaborative authorship. You're also problematizing it by thinking about racialized dynamics. We are thinking about having Wheatley be the author and John Wheatley being contributor. I'm curious what you do with amanuenses. Um, so for instance, I'm thinking about David Wilson. He worked with Solomon Northup on 12 Years a Slave. Scholars are still arguing over what role he played. So I wondered how you were dealing with that specific question. Thank you. I think I'm trying to remember our documentation of where the amanuensis gets attached. Yes. Um, it may be attached at the work, at the level of the work, um, uh, but very important for, for lots of 19th century, 18th and 19th century black writing, absolutely. But it is one of our data fields. I have to go back and check mm -hmm. our documentation. I should say the documentation is complicated enough that um, you know, if it's been a couple of weeks or months since I've done any data entry, I get a little fuzzy on the concept and I've got to consult it. Uh, regularly, but um, the metadata team built a beautiful document that allows you to click and refresh your memory of where everything goes. Um, do you remember, I, Jackie? Where? No, I know we have a. a you know we have the field. I just, yeah, I can't remember where it goes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have we have more questions in the queue. And Ida Jones um, is next. Ida, would you unmute yourself? Yes, good evening. I had a question in regards to the nature of how the, the works of, let's say, Dorothy Porter and Schomburg were categorized as seemingly reactive to, quote, a mainline or dominant narrative versus as a proactive way in which to find voice for their own community. So I'd like you to kind of discuss that in brief. And then also, in looking at the teams you've created that those institutional heirs, be it Moreland Spingarn or the Schomburg Library, seemingly don't have representation on the teams that have been assembled. So I'm wondering in terms of how you're viewing these subject fields or categories that you're talking about seemingly are somewhat myopic in terms of institutions that are continuing in the traditions of those individuals not being at the table to kind of offer that proactive conversation in the midst of this technological space you're creating. So, um, those two points. And then thirdly, I'd also like to add that you might consider some interdisciplinary understanding and that it's not just simply literature but that bleeds into other humanities fields. Maybe that is down the road. Um, I'm a Luddite, so I don't understand the technology, but I just think it's very interesting that some things to me are seemingly ingredients missing at the, the outset of the recipe. And I'd like to kind of have your opinion on how that's being mapped out in the current and then possible future incarnations of this. Thanks, thanks so much for those, those the questions and, and the provocations are really important. Um, I wanna take up the question of the consortium first um, because our team is actually uh, more um, diverse than that title card suggests. Yeah. Um, the team that we you know, featured here were, were the folks who uh, worked with us for a year intensively um, to take action on a series of a whole series of conversations, collaborations, and discussions that we've had 
with librarians, curators, archivists from HBCUs, um, from um, other public libraries, in fact, um, from 20, and, and from 2017 to 2019, before the Mellon stepped in to support us, um, our own institutions uh, supported us in reaching out um, to uh, librarians and, and uh, archivists from, say, the Chicago Public Library, from Fisk, from Emory, from, we did invite um, the staff from the Moreland Spingren, and unfortunately they couldn't attend our kind of planning brainstorming workshops that where we came up with what Kathleen Bethel from Northwestern called you know, the commitment to an Afrocentric approach to bibliography. Um, so when we move into the implementation phase of the project, which we hope will happen with the Mellon support, we absolutely intend to um, expand in, in a, to, to include as many different kinds of institutions as we can, if only to get access to the multiple copies of works that we need in order to fully describe them. Um, and so um, that's, I want to address, you know, the, the, the point about the consortium there. In terms of how we were characterizing the tradition of Black bibliographic scholarship, um, it certainly wasn't our intention, and thank you for calling this out, um, to posit it as reactive. We understood it to be excitingly and challengingly proactive. Um, and um, I'd be curious, you know, Meredith, you can speak to this as well, but, and I'd be curious to hear from you, Ida, if you don't mind my using your, your first name, that um, to hear, to, to talk with you more about that. I mean, in our own instance, um, in our own sense, um, the work of Porter, the work of Schomburg, the work of Jim Danke, uh, who organized the National Bibliography of African-American Newspapers and Periodicals, that is some of the most radical work happening. And, um, and so we understood ourselves to be, con we, to conceive of their work, their scholarship um, as proactive. Um, I'd like to hear more from you about how we might, you know, how you understand what proaction looks like and means and, and to think with you about that. Um, and the same um, with your point about interdisciplinarity. Um, I think for the purposes of our project, the Black Bibliography Project, um, Meredith and I are literary historians um, and we are thinking about creative literature at the heart of our project. Um, but we know full well that Black inquiry it is interdisciplinary and it's a challenge at every turn, even the conception of what counts as literature, right? What counts as writing um, is one that we face with it in every step of this project. But again, it's a matter of both scope for us and it's a matter of our own expertise um, and our sense in our own field of what's missing in, in African-American literary studies, um, why we're focused on literature, creative literature. Um, but again, I'd like to, you know, let's talk about how you envision what interdisciplinarity means in this context. Yes, I, I don't think we have as much time to really go into all the nuances of it. And I understand that this is an incarnation that will constantly be evolving, but I, I look at the idea of the humanities and I, I have dubbed the term amphibious scholarship as what HBCU campuses have always had to do. So mm -hmm. it wasn't the luxury of being rather compartmentalized into what you might call literary 
creative works or what have you in some yeah. kind of smaller yeah. category, but yeah. it's far more nuanced in terms of the kaleidoscopic nature of the humanities and its relevance to the wellness of the person, mind, body, and soul. So you're uh -huh. getting in dimensions of religion, you're getting in dimensions of social work and sociology, you're getting into history, you're getting into art, as you mentioned about musicians. So you're getting into all the different nuances yeah. of the lived experience, whether it yeah. be the urban center or the rural space. Mm -hmm. So that's how I'm looking at it in a kaleidoscopic perspective in mm -hmm. which this kind of conflation and expansion happened over the course of a lived experience mm -hmm. and how you're mm -hmm. trying to pre producing your student population as well as your faculty population this kind of composite person mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you kind of anthropomorphize the institution as well as the curriculum so that's where I'm kind of coming from and it's it's very broad and unwieldy so I know that can't be tempered down into seven fields or ten fields so mm -hmm. I might be extremely unrealistic mm -hmm. in my ask mm -hmm. but I just think mm -hmm. it's something to consider yeah. as we know yeah. the technology is constantly changing yeah. so I don't yeah. expect to like I don't think we'll ever have a finished product because we're going to be constantly evolved so yeah, it's yeah. just an idea I think of, of seeing certain kinds of persons in the conversation and yeah 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 she's mute Meredith is mute so yeah. she might want to sorry I was going to just jump in really quickly to say um that um what you've just described is in the tradition of black bibliography in a way that our project may not be I mean Jackie and I have talked about this we distilled those principles we're like the one we're not doing here you know, because of questions of scope is, is, the, is, inter, you know, we're aware of and awake to the need for interdisciplinarity, um, you know, and, and we'll be thinking about this certainly, but, but what you've described is very much in the tradition of what we were describing in the first half of our talk. Yeah, and if I might, if I might add in, in one um, bibliography that just really brought this home, Teresha Rush's, we mentioned it in our remarks, her biographical and bibliographical, biographical and bibliographical dictionary is such a humbling example and absolutely mind-blowing example of a literary bibliography because of the ways in which she explodes the construct of author. Yeah. But she gives these amazing biography, first of all, first of all, you know, what these, what these bibliographies teach me is that, again, Black authorship is so widespread and so varied and so grassroots. It really, it really is. And, um, and so that you find that there are a whole host of authors who are living, who are writing amid a complex life. The kaleidoscopic life you're talking about, Ida. And if you were to read Rush's bibliography, it just will explode your head. I'm putting it about, on my list. I'm putting it on my yeah, list it's, right it's now. It's amazing. It's amazing, <laughs> you know? And 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 I think I take it as a as a as a as a both a provocation and as a challenge, right? How can we recognize um, the multiplicity that black authors bring to the work of making a print object? And I also think that when we really go into the the ways in which our bibliography will be able to detail the world of book print makers we'll find that these actors have very varied lives i'm sure of that i'm sure well, thank of that you. i do appreciate and so, it and yeah. um i knew dorothy porter and worked with her in the winter of her life ah. so i'm channeling a little bit of dpw right now okay so, thank you for that um <laughs> i always want to make sure she's situated as, as a pioneer and not simply as a reactionary oh person. yeah no 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 absolutely thank you and you were you were fortunate and on that note, um, I want it's time for us to shift to the reception. We hope that we can continue the conversation there. But before 
before we do that, two things. Um, first, another round of applause for our brilliant speakers and this really, really stimulating talk. Also, just the their project, which is so key and so vital right now for our community. Thank you, um, Jacqueline. Thank you, Meredith, um, for spending this time with us. And I, I know that many people will be eager to speak with you um, just a moment in the reception.